Genesis chapter 15, uh, verses 1 to 6 this morning. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abraham, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside, and he says, Look towards the heaven, and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to them, him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Father, we come before you today and are thankful for uh, a word which never changes. We are thankful for a word that you have in grace and mercy shared with us and brought us into your circle, so to speak, so that we can not only know you, but know your way with us and know how we can enter a relationship with you. Thank you for revealing your heart and your mind to us. I pray in turn, Father, that we will open our minds towards you, that we will open our hearts towards you, and that we will turn our wills towards you. Because there are so many convening voices, and we need to hear you. So make this book live, I pray. Make it live in my heart. Make it live in the hearts of those that are listening today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We've divided uh, Genesis chapter 15 up in two because it contains two specific reminders of the promises of God to Abraham. The first six verses is the promise of people to Abraham and descendants to Abraham. Uh, the last verses from verse 7 to verse 21 are the promises of a land to Abraham. And I think what we need to know as a people of God and those listening today is that the Bible presents to us what is known as redemptive history. We look around us and we see recorded in the newspapers on the news world history. And world history is real. Uh, world history is not random. World history is guided and directed by God. And the Bible is very clear about that, that God sets up and God sets down, that God puts in place and God removes leaders and directs all the events of the world in which we live. But world history is secondary to redemptive history. And what the Bible presents to us is how God, in the midst of world history, is redeeming a people for himself. How God is saving rebels who have disobeyed him, run away from him, disregarded him, and how God draws them back to himself. And so in Abraham, we begin to see the seeds of redemptive history. In Abraham, we see how God is calling to him and through him a people who will be God's own possession. And eventually, how God will give us a land which is the new heavens and the new earth in the world to come. And so God is laying this all out for us in the Bible, which is part of the world in which we live. So as we come to this particular text, we're dealing with the promises of God to Abraham. And as we think about the promises of God, I wonder if you've ever been tempted to doubt the promises of God. I wonder if you've ever been tempted to doubt the goodness of God in your life. 
to question whether God can be trusted or not. It's kind of like Eve in the Garden of Eden when Satan came to her and threw doubts into her mind and said, has God really said? There are moments when we are sort of put on a test and the test is, will we trust God even though we can't see the outcome of what God asks us to believe him for? And as we think about the promises of God, believing the promises of God often involves severe difficulties. Promises from God are an incredible gift to us, but to continue believing them is not always a piece of cake. Sometimes we need help to stand on the promises of God. And sometimes we need fresh assurance from God that we can continue to trust the promises that come to us from God. And so as we approach these first six verses, I want to do it from the point of view of Abraham working through the promises of God and how they freshly apply to his life. The first uh, line of uh, reasoning or the first point that I want to make from the text is simply this, that faith, and faith is our belief that God will do what he says he will do, faith faces the passage of time. In other words, we know that when God makes us a promise, it doesn't come to pass right away. Sometimes it comes to pass five years later, 20 years later, 50 years later. Sometimes we won't see the promise actually fulfilled in our lifetime. And so faith in the promises of God faces the passage of time, and that time can be wearing on us. And so we come to this text, and as we look at Abraham, I wonder sometimes if God preempts a crisis in our lives sometimes. He preempts a, preempts a crisis by reminding us of a promise that he's made to us that he hasn't yet fulfilled. After all, it's God who instigates the conversation with Abraham. It's not Abraham that comes to God. It's rather God that comes to Abraham. And it says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. And God said to him, fear not, Abraham. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. It would seem to me that something's going on in Abraham's head. There's something brewing there that God is very much aware of. And it's been precipitated by the events of Genesis chapter 14, which we looked at last week. And rather than leave those things unspoken in Abraham's head, God draws out Abraham's thoughts, so to speak, by reminding him of the promise. It's like God, rather than leaving those things unspoken, says, Abraham, we need to have a talk about what's going on in your head and possibly your heart. And so the text tells us after these things, well, what things? Well, the things related to what Abraham did in rescuing his nephew Lot. It was this incredible victory that God gave to Abraham as he chased after four kings of the uh, Mesopotamia, ancient Near East, as he chased after them, defeated them in a battle, took all the possessions that they had stolen or taken from Sodom and Gomorrah, including Lot and all his possessions, and brought them back to safety. After those things... But there was a second thing. There was a conversation that Abraham had with two kings, the king of Sodom and the king of Salem. And this conversation is a fascinating conversation again between these two kings. And Abraham put his faith and his weight behind the king of Sodom, or the king of uh, Salem, sorry. And so it's after those things that stuff is beginning to churn in Abraham's head. 
And God's first words to him are, fear not. See, again, clearly God knows what's going on in Abraham's head. And I would also say God knows what's going on in your head and your heart. There's nothing that you think, there's nothing that you fear, there's nothing that you mull over that God doesn't know about. That's the greatness of God and the vastness of God. What we're not told is what Abraham is to not be afraid of. And so I tried to think of, well, what was it that maybe Abraham was afraid of? Well, it could be, possibly, the riches and possessions that he had just kissed goodbye. Remember, he had, he had brought back all this wealth, but he had been convicted in his heart not to take a single thing from what he had taken, lest the king of Sodom say to him, I have made you rich, Abraham. And so maybe his fear was, well, if I let go of all this, if I give up all these possessions and this wealth, I'm going to be a poor man. But I think Abraham had come to know that God had just richly blessed him. I wonder if it, though, could be this, that Abraham had just now made enemies with four of the most significant kings of his day. These were kings that were all too likely to rally their troops and come back after him. After all, that's what they did to Sodom and Gomorrah in the cities, cities on the plain. They had rebelled. They had a year of reprieve. And then in the 14th year, all these kings amassed their armies and came and defeated them. And so maybe Abraham was afraid that these kings were going to come back and get him. But I wonder if what went through his head was, no, no, the king of, um, uh, of Salem had said to him, Melchizedek had said to him, Abraham, remember, it's God who has delivered these armies into your hands. So maybe that wasn't the reason that he was afraid. It maybe, though, could have been that Abraham had just risked his life to rescue his nephew. And Lot was a king's kinsman. He wasn't a blood relative of his own. He was not part of Abraham's own family. And maybe Abraham was reflecting on the battle, and it would have been a fierce battle. It would have been a, a battle where they were vastly outnumbered, uh, and Abraham was reflecting on that. He was made aware of his own mortality and his lack of his, his own son, and he wasn't getting any younger, and so maybe he was afraid that he was going to die childless. And then what would happen to the promise of God to him? That from him would come many nations. I suspect those are the last two are maybe what was going through his mind because God says to him, first of all, I am your shield. That's God's way of saying to Abraham, Abraham, I will protect you. Abraham, I will cover you. Abraham, I will look after you. I looked after you when you went after those four kings and I will look after you from now until the day that you die. I am your shield. But then he says, and I am also or, or Abraham, your reward is very great. I think by saying that, God was saying to Abraham, look, I've got this child thing in control. I made a promise to you, and I will keep my word to you. Do not worry. I will give you a descendant. But you see, Abraham's problem was time. And it's always time with the promises of God. See, Abraham was 75 years old when they left Haran. He would not have Isaac until he was 100 years old. By my rough calculations, Abraham was now about 86 or 87 years old. Over a decade had passed 
when God had made the promise to him that I will give you an heir. And still no heir. Should he die now, Eliezer of Damascus, one of his household servants, would be his heir. And so it's kind of like what I think is going through Abraham's head. is, oh Lord God, what can you give me for I am childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. These are the first recorded words of Abraham to God here. He says, Sovereign Lord, it's been over ten years now since you promised to give me a child. And look, I'm still childless. I have the promise, but nothing in my life has changed. You promised me a great nation and nothing. You promised to give me the land of Canaan, a place for my seed to live, and nothing. You said my descendants would number more than the dust of the earth and nothing. Time is not on Abraham's side. I think it's important that as you listen to this, the tone in Abraham's voice, though, is not one of complaining. My mother used to say to me um, when, we, when she would complain, she said, well, I'm not complaining, I'm just reporting. And I don't think that Abraham is angry at God here. I don't think he's doubting God. And yet the text indicates that he's not doubting God. But what he is, is, is he's just reminding God or reporting to God that God made a promise. And that promise still hasn't happened yet. I want us to hear very clearly that faith in God does not mean that we can't question God. It very much matters the tone in which we question God. But I do believe that as God's children, we can question him. Notice Abraham's tone before God, sovereign Lord. Master, my master, the one who rules over me. He might have had in the back of his head the, the name that Melchizedek used, God most high, possessor of heaven and, and earth. So Abraham comes before God respectfully, not angrily. Not in a rebellious kind of way. I was, when I was writing this, I was thinking of a... I, I do confess, I listen to country music once in a while. And this country song kept going through my head as I was working this around in my head. It's the country song, which probably some of you know, Jersey on the Wall. And as I went through this song in my head, I, I wasn't entirely comfortable with it. Because it seemed to come from the heart of an individual who had given up on God who was actually angry with God, who had walked away from God because in the midst of difficult circumstances, their question hadn't been answered, so they were done with God. And so again, I'm, I'm not sure if I can discern the tone, but I certainly feel the pain. The, the song goes something like this. There's a jersey on the wall in a high school gym in my hometown in the corner by the scoreboard where the bleacher seats fold down. 27 took the Tigers to the finals that year. But that's not why it's hanging there. I bet somewhere there's a yearbook in a box under a bed with a senior picture missing in loving memory instead. And somewhere there's a mother who stopped going to church because your plan quit making sense down here on earth. And then the chorus is, if I ever get to heaven, you know, I got a long list of questions how did you make the snowflakes? Are you angry when the earthquakes? How does the sky change in a minute? How do you keep this big rock spinning? If you've got your hands on everything that happens, then why can't you stop that car from crashing? 
Forgive me, I'm just asking. There's deep pain in the words of that song. And the pain is directed towards God. And it seems like the pain has led to a giving up on God. But also then, as I was working through this, Psalm 68 came, or 62 came into my head. A, a verse that I've been thinking about now for two or three weeks, and I just can't get it out of my head. And the order of these words really, really matters. Because I think it's the order of how Abraham was thinking. The psalmist begins this way. Trust in him at all times, O people. That's our default. That's our approach to God. No matter what's going on around us, no matter what's happening in our world, no matter what our circumstances, he says, trust in the Lord all, at all times, you people. But then note the next line. Pour out your hearts before God, for God is your refuge. That's the context of reporting to God. That's the context of spilling our guts before God. It, it's, a, it's a context that, that flows out of a determined um, decision and direction of the mind to trust in the Lord at all times, even though life doesn't make sense. And then I pour out my heart to God. John Calvin, on these particular uh, verses, says this, The Lord sometimes concedes to his children that they may freely express any objection which comes to mind. That's pouring out your heart. For he does not act so strictly with them as to not suffer himself to be questioned. I think of this with kids with their parents. I think uh, kids need to be very careful of the attitude to which they question their parents' decisions. And the way they challenge things that their parents say. But I don't think any parent would ever say that their kid can never come and say, well, can you give me a reason for that? Or can you explain that? Or why can't I have it today rather than why do I have to weep? It's the attitude and the way in which they deal with the objection that matters. So it is in our relationship with God. Another thing I think, though, that as you flip this around, which one individual pointed out is that bringing our difficulties over the promises before God shows that they really matter to us. And so when you're hanging on to a promise and it hasn't yet been fulfilled, you don't just throw it away. You don't just walk away from it. You're hanging on to it. And so you go back to God and you say, but God, this is what you told me. This is what your word says. This is what you affirmed to me. I don't want to let it go. Can you help me understand it? Only faith would do that. Unbelief spits on the promises of God. Only faith struggles over them. Unbelief dismisses those promises. Only faith debates them with God. And so this very struggle over God's word is the beginning of assurance in Abraham's heart that God will do what he has promised. The second point I want to make from this text is that God's promises cannot be made more sure. But you can become more sure of his promises. It's really important that you grasp that and you work that around your head. God's promises cannot be made more sure. But you can become more sure of his promises. Theologians have long distinguished between the act of faith, which is trust, and the content of faith, which is belief. And so God spoke to Abraham, reminding him of a great reward, which is the content of his faith. The great reward was descendants that were more than the dust of the earth. But Abraham couldn't see that. 
He couldn't see the innumerable offspring that would come to him, the nations that would come from his loins, or the church, which is us, that would come from Abraham's faith, or the final scene of the fulfillment of God's promise that John describes in Revelation. This is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that nobody could number from every nation, from all the tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the land lamb that was the fulfillment of the promise of God to Abraham that he would have many descendants but Abraham couldn't see that physical reality before him because yet he had not a single child he had no heir and so in response God uses two amazing instruments of grace word and vision which I've called the sights and the sounds of assurance Notice what God does. He directs Abraham's gaze upward, away from his own reality that he has physically no children yet. And he uses heaven as an entrance into sort of um, Abraham's heart to see the vision that God has promised to give to him. And what does Abraham see? He sees the stars. He sees the reality of God's promise and he trusts in that. You see, loved ones, the point that I want to continue to try and make here is that God cannot make his promises more sure. God can't say, cross my fingers, they're behind my back. When, when God makes a promise, he gives his word. There is nothing that he can do to make that more sure. Nothing. He's God. When he speaks, it comes to be. When he gives his word, nothing will ever make it more sure than the simple fact that he has given his word. But he can make those promises more sure to you and I. So again, take Abraham, for instance. He's been promised a seed. Not just any seed. And God now drills in on Abraham and says, Listen, Abraham, I want you to know, so you can be certain that the seed that is going to come from you is going to come from your body. It's not going to become one of your household servants. It's going to be from you, Abraham. This will be your flesh and blood. But God's assurance goes even farther than, farther than that. It's evening time, obviously. It's nighttime. And God says to Abraham, Abraham, come, let's go outside. Let's go outside. I was, I was in my hot tub last night, I don't know, 2, 3 in the morning. It was an, an incredible night. And I looked up, and it, the sky was full of stars. Like just full of stars. And this is what God did. He, he pulled Abraham out of his tent, probably out of his sleep. And he said, Abraham, let's go outside for a minute. He said, I, I want you to look at the stars. And I want you to count them if you're able to count them. See, this is the sight of faith. Abraham had the word of faith. Now God is giving him the sight of faith. It's a visual aid to help his faith grow even stronger that God will fulfill his promise, promises to him. God says to him, as you look at the stars of the heaven of Abraham, that's how many children you're going to have. Think about this. You can have a printed recipe for an amazing dessert. And you have this card, and you know many of us have maybe our our grandparents' cards or our mother's um, recipe cards. And there's these wonderful cards that they have and they've got the recipe all printed out and they've got the, the ingredients listed and then they've got the way in which you 
put that thing together and how long you cook it for and how high the temperature ought to be and what you do when you pull the thing out of the oven. Um, so you've got this, this, this product of the recipe. Or you can present a full color picture of that same thing. Often you can go to Canadian Living or some of these magazines and they have these, Thanksgiving's the time when they do it, they have these full color glossy pictures of these cakes or these treats that you can make. And then just down in the corner is the printed recipe. But as you look at that picture, you begin to salivate because you can, you can actually see it. You can, you can, it's like you can smell it. You can see the designs on it. You can see the colors on it. Sometimes it's cut, and you can see the perfect bake, and you can see the layers of stuff between all the layers of cake. I don't know what it is, but it's good. But the picture does something for you that the words don't do. And this is what God is doing for Abraham. By showing him the stars, he's giving him a picture to make the promise that he's given in word more sure to Abraham. He wants to get hold of his imagination. He wants to, to, to by, the, by the vision of the stars at night, to make the promise more certain in Abraham's mind. And then in Abraham's mind, the vision, I'm sure, is cemented by this name that he's just recently learned about God. God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And it's like Abraham got it. Later, biblical writers will describe how God has put the stars into space and names them all. I was thinking of this when I was sitting in my hot tub, looking at the stars, and I, I thought, God, you know every single one of them. And this is what the biblical writer says. The psalmist says he determines the numbers of stars and he gives all of them names. Do you think that maybe God spoke these words of Isaiah to Abraham before Abraham recorded to them? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created all of these, Abraham. He brings out their host by number. He calls them all by name, by the greatness of the might, uh, his might, and because he is strong, not one of them is missing. I've heard there are millions and millions of stars in just the Milky Way. And then there are trillions of other galaxies in the universe. God put every one of those stars there, and he knows their name. Somehow Abraham got that, and he believed God. God. And the last point is simply this. It's the object of faith that matters, not the amount of faith. This is so important for the people of God to get this. It's the object of faith that matters, not the amount. Look at these last few words. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. These words are at the heart of redemptive history. And these words will explode now on the pages of the rest of Scripture. You can go to Romans chapter 4, for instance. And Romans chapter 4 is an explanation of these words. You can go to Galatians chapter 3. In Galatians chapter 3, the first part are, is an explanation of these words. And you can go to James chapter 2 and you can find an explanation of these words. But in fact, this truth is now the heart of redemptive history and it is worked out throughout the pages of Scripture. What I think 
I really want you to get this morning, because it matters, is that verse 6 is an editorial comment. It's not part of the narrative of verses 1 to 5. It's not part of the story of 1 to 5. It's an editorial comment inserted by Moses to, to make a statement about Abraham. And it's important that we understand this. Because this is a comment on the significance of Abraham's faith. And as far as I've worked out, this is not the point of Abraham's conversion. Chapter 15, verse 6, is not where Abraham finally becomes a child of God. When, we, when Abraham was saved, we might say. See, the translations of many of our scriptures might lead us to believe that. He says, and Abraham believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. I think it's better translated, or, and, and a number of commentators will point this out, that then at the end of this, it says, And Abraham continued to believe the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. In other words, this was the way that Abraham walked with God. He remained firm in his faith. He continued to trust in the promises of God. In other words, verse 6 is, is not only the response of Abraham to verses 1 to 5 of chapter 15, but Abraham's response to God starting at verse 12 on. It's a summary of Abraham's relationship to God and with God. The writer of Abraham says, uh, or the writer of Hebrews says about Abraham, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out of the place he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. That's when he left Haran. See, what, what the editor is saying here is that Abraham was a man of faith. And that it was that faith that, that God credited to him, or through faith in God, God put his righteousness on Abraham. And we're getting to the, the very character of Abraham. He was a man of faith. You go to um, Hebrews chapter 11 and you read it, and for almost everybody that's described there, you will find one verse that describes their faith. You come to Moses, and there are six verses that describe uh, Moses' acts of faith. You come to Abraham, and there's 12. I think what the writer of Hebrews wants us to understand is that the characteristic of Abraham's life. We might say Scrooge is characterized as a stingy man. If you think of Scrooge, you think, oh, stingy. You might think of, of, of Sherlock Holmes as perceptive. But when you think of Abraham, you're supposed to think of faith. This is what characterized his life, was faith in God. And so how does it come out? Well, look at this text. There are three key words that are used in verse 6 that, again, are, are, are the seedbed of redemptive history. For the first time in the scriptures, and I know we're only in chapter 15, but the first time these three words are used. The first word is believe. It's the first time believe is used in the scriptures says that Abraham believed in the Lord. Now, notice that is so important. Where was Abraham's faith? It wasn't in himself. It wasn't in his own ability to, to believe. It wasn't like the, the little train that could, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. No, Abraham's faith was in the Lord. That was the object of his faith. Remember, it's the object of your faith that matters, not the amount of faith. And so as Abraham believed in the Lord, the object of his faith was God Most High. The object of his faith was the Sovereign Lord. Belief was the default of his relationship with God. 
Secondly, this is the first time the word righteousness, the noun righteousness, is used in the Bible. It says he counted his faith to him as righteousness. Well, what is righteousness? It's perfection. It's moral perfection. It's, it's, it's having no blemishes or no mars in us that are moral mars. We are perfect before God. And so because of his faith or through his faith in God, God counted that trust in him, that object of his faith. God said, because of that, I will make Abraham righteous. Perfect. And then this is the first time that the word reckon or credit is used in the scripture. Such an important word. It's an accounting word. God counted to Abraham his trust in God. God counted that to him as righteousness. God looked at the ledger of his life and he took away all of the moral failures and the sins and he took those off the ledger. He, he, he erased them from the ledger and instead he put there the righteousness of God and he saw Abraham as righteous. Something remarkable is being said to us here. It wasn't so much the promise that Abraham sunk his teeth into as it was the promiser. The promise was almost secondary. What was primary was his confidence and his belief in the promiser to do what he promised. In this verse is the single most important truth you can ever understand about salvation and redemptive history. It's about how can a sinner be right with God? How can somebody who has disregarded God, walked away from God, broken the commands of God, worshipped idols, how can that individual ever be brought back into a relationship with God that is characterized by peace? The short answer to this, and we don't have time to do the short answer to this is that we can become righteous in God's sight through faith alone in Christ alone. When God sees our union with Christ, when God sees our trust fully on Christ, when God sees that we can do nothing and are doing nothing to make ourselves right before God, but lean wholly on Christ, God takes that confidence in Christ and credits to us the righteousness of Christ. This is how John Bunyan describes it. He's the one who wrote Pilgrim's Progress. He's written some of the most amazing stuff. You can get his work still today. But this is what he wrote. Forgive the language. I'll try and um, help us a little bit with the language. But this is how John Bunyan describes realizing that, that Christ was his righteousness. He says, one day I was passing in a field. And this sentence, this, this thought fell upon my soul. He said, my righteousness is in heaven. Now, that's an important thing. He's saying, my righteousness is not in my works. My righteousness is not in my goodness. My, my lack of righteousness is not in my badness. He says, my righteousness is in heaven. And methought with all, I saw with the eyes of my soul Jesus Christ at God's right hand. And there, I say, was my righteousness. You see, he saw Christ sitting beside God as his righteousness. And he says, so, that, so wherever I, I was, or whatever I was doing, God could not say of me, he lacks my righteousness, for that was right beside him. 
You see what he's saying? He's saying, wherever I go, whatever I do, God doesn't see me as me. God sees me through Christ, the righteous one who is sitting beside him, who God has accepted. He says, my righteousness is right before him. And I also saw, moreover, that it was not my good frame of heart that made, me, that made my righteousness better, or, nor yet my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was in Jesus himself, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And then he says, now then did my chains on my legs fall off. I was loosed from my afflictions and irons. My temptations also fled away, so that from that time those dreadful scriptures of God left off to trouble me. Now, when I also went home rejoicing in the grace and the love of God. You see, what John Bunyan is describing is not a righteousness in himself, but a righteousness outside of himself, which is Christ Jesus. And the way we receive that righteousness is by faith alone. And so we've got to come to what the scriptures say. Will you trust what scriptures say about you and your sin? And we don't have to, I could go through dozens of scriptures that, Describe human beings as rebels against God and lost in their sin. Will you trust what God says about the remedy for your sins? The remedy for your sins is not how much you give. The remedy for your sins is not how good a person you are. The remedy for your sins is not being born into the right family. The remedy for your sins is Christ and Christ alone. And will you then put your trust in Christ alone to deliver you from your sins and to give you his righteousness so that you're acceptable before God. You see, when you do that, God does something remarkable. It's almost beyond explanation. If the Bible didn't tell us it were true, we'd have a hard time understanding. But when we do that, as I've already said, what God does is he takes, the, he takes your sins and he takes Christ and he puts them over your sins. And he counts them against you no longer. It's an accounting term. He takes them off the ledger. But he doesn't just leave the ledger empty. He does something on the other side of the ledger. On the credit side, he, he credits you with all of Christ's righteousness. All of his obedience, all of his perfections, all of his trust, all of his confidence in God. All of that God credits to you. So then what he sees is he sees you as he sees his son, Jesus Christ. Scripture says, God made him who knew no sin, which is Christ, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Amazing truth. Wrestle with it. Read Romans chapter 4. Trust Christ today for your righteousness. Because through Christ alone will you be accepted to God forever and ever. Father, I thank you for your word today. I thank you for the way that you allow us to wrestle with your promises. Not because your promises lack anything, but because sometimes our faith wavers and we need to grasp a little bit more clearly and therefore be more sure of your promise because of how you deal with us. Father, will you help us see today amongst those that are listening the way we enter into a relationship with you that's characterized by peace is not through our efforts. It's not through our works, but it's through our trust in you and in your provision for us, and in particular, your provision of Christ for us. Help us not to be deceived. 
Help us not to ignore this reality. But would you open our eyes, Father, to see this incredible reality for ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.